This show is brought to you by the Bitbox O2. Don't leave your Bitcoins on exchanges. That's a bad idea. Seriously, don't do it. Hardware wallets are an easy and convenient way to take custody of your Bitcoin, which is a highly, highly, highly recommended thing to do. The Bitbox O2 is a great open source hardware wallet for beginners, as well as for people that want to add to their mix. Super easy to use. And if you'd like to learn more about how to take custody of your Bitcoin, and again, get it off exchange, go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire for 5% off. And once you've done that, we're going down to Miami in June 4th and 5th for the Bitcoin 2021 conference. It's going to be a phenomenal time. I get more excited every day. I can't wait to meet all you people and everyone that we've been, uh, I've been speaking with on the show over the last year or so. Uh, it's going to be phenomenal. If you want to go, go to b.tc forward slash conference, use the promo code VALIS for 15% off, and we will see you there. Francis, what's up, my man? Hey, hi, John, man. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, everything's going really well. <laughs> You're looking, uh, you're looking very natural. Let's say that you're looking very natural right now. How has yes, the, last, the last year been for you? We've been, this has been a long time in the works. I'm glad it finally came together. Tell me what's up. Yeah, the, the last year has been uh, phenomenal, both in terms of my um, personal life and both in terms of my business life, um, which is, you know, quite telling, I guess, in, in these times. Um, I think that these uh, these last year and a half was a true kind of test of character for a lot of people, and it was definitely a wake up call for a lot of people to take control of their of their life and act. Um, and uh, I'm really happy I took that opportunity. So I mean, starting from the uh, market crash of March, um, the volume on Bitcoin exchanges and just Bitcoin activity in general has just been skyrocketing. So bull Bitcoin has been doing really well. Anybody that's working in the Bitcoin buying or selling or trading or event or any kind of business model that has a, a clientele of Bitcoiners has been doing extremely well. And uh, I'm happy to report that I have, I have uh, successfully escaped the pods. Uh, I no longer live in a big city. Um, I had been talking on Twitter a lot about um, the kind of cultural shift we were seeing, the kind of socioeconomic shift we were seeing. And I think like a lot of people, I had identified living in an apartment in a, in a big city to be quite an unreasonable thing to do. Um, I endeavored to make myself more anti-fragile. So I left the country that I was born and raised and lived with for a long time, which is Canada. I moved to Central America um, out in the jungle, uh, sold kind of all my possessions that I had in the country, closed down the offices there, and dedicated myself essentially to becoming a fully sovereign individual. So again, like most, I think people in the Bitcoin space, I'm aware of what the, that book is, the sovereign individual, or at least generally the concept. Um, today, you can call it kind of a, you know, Bitcoin digital nomad. I would be kind of a good, a, good, a good way to put it, or at least someone that's able to move around the world and choose his jurisdiction and choose his way of life um, without consideration of the nation state barriers, um, you know, using the fact that he has, you know, censorship-resistant bearer assets like Bitcoin or or just just Bitcoin to move around. So that's kind of like what I've been doing, just trying to make myself anti-fragile, trying to create a lifestyle for myself that can 
we can do this to a period of hyper-Bitcoinization. I, I have a lot of uncertainty about the stability, the, you know, socio-political stability, um, the fiat economy. Um, so I've just been really focused on uh, on upping my game, uh, not necessarily my survivalist game, but just my getting ready for the shit to hit the fan, for the global economy to collapse, and um, spending a lot of time investing in myself, my personal uh, skill set. You know, it's kind of it's kind of silly, but I've been I've been practicing, you know, driving at high speeds in the jungle and and uh, learning ride motorcycle. Um, learning how to ride four by four, learning just some skills that as a computer nerd, I didn't have any of those skills. Um, I, w I was definitely living more of a live action role playing lifestyle, you know, behind my computer, uh, wishing myself to become more sovereign and have more control over my life, uh, but, but feeling stuck, feeling stuck in, a, in the fiat lifestyle, uh, despite having my intellectual self and my emotional self already way past the fiat lifestyle and way into the Bitcoin, um, low time preference, um, sovereign individual, uh, strong alpha male, you know, mindset. I was already living there. Um, so I thought, um, you know, what's stopping me from doing that? So I, I just actually adjusted my own personal lifestyle to my ideals. Happiness, that, that's kind of how I see the recipe to happiness. I think Jordan Peterson talks about that. It's just to making sure that your actions and your own real existence in the physical world is perfectly in line with your intellectual self and with your emotional self and with your ethics and values. I love that, man. I love it. And there's, there's so much I want to break into, but before we do, before we talk about motivations, you know, for leaving and all that kind of stuff, what's that last year, that journey been like of like finding the vulnerabilities and shoring them up so that you can become a more confident, less dependent, sovereign individual? What's it been like doing it where you're doing it? You know, like just give me shed a little light on the experience of having done that over the past year and building that sovereign life. Yeah, um, I guess it happened um, little by little at first. Um, I think I made a first a, a conscious decision. Uh, I made a conscious. I, I, I made a decision to leave, and it's almost as if I, I I decided finally to hold myself accountable. So the first thing was I think finding uh, the the self accountability. And a lot of people right now, for example, are telling me all the time that they want to leave the country, they want to restart their life, but um, you know not 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 to devalue their arguments, but they all have excuses they all they, they, they all find ways to to argue against themselves and to me it just seems like they just haven't made that decision they just haven't accepted the consequences of that decision fully and they're still trying to trying kind of finding ways to cop out of making a conscious decision first and foremost uh and it's been an emotional roller coaster. i think like a lot of people i i went through stages of grief kind of almost uh grief for western civilization grief for my my former hopes and dreams about what my life was going to be like in the future. I went through stages of, you know, denial, anger, um, uh, depression. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm not going to put this whole thing didn't hit me hard on a personal level. I did feel uh, very, very low time, very high times. Um, it, 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 and I, I think gradually over time, what I, try to do for myself is to establish what I call a, a, a regulating lifestyle, uh, a lifestyle which is able to essentially think about like all the variations of emotions and 
and, <clears throat> and socioeconomic conditions that are put upon us. Uh, we're living in very chaotic times that are, that are moving from lows and highs in unpredictable ways. So you really have to put yourself into a, and that includes most of all nutrition and fitness and, and personal lifestyle habits. Um, so it's been, and, and, journey in a kind of Hunter Thompson way, as if I'm, I'm chronicling this novel of the sovereign individual in the 21st, in 2020, 2021 on Twitter, on social media. Um, I'm, I was chronicling my own lifestyle and thoughts as I, I was moving forward. Um, you know, and your listeners know I'm very active on Twitter and I talk about a lot about my personal life and not, I, I don't, I'm not just a Bitcoin pundit. I like to think of myself as just a general on Twitter, almost as a, as a diary. Uh, so I, I had been observing myself and, and kind of like going against the checklist of the sovereign individual. And it's been really rewarding because I think I really crushed it on, on many levels. Um, obviously the, um, the, on the Bitcoin level, I, you know, I was right fucking for eight years in a row telling everyone to go all in. And uh, it, it's been a vindication moment. Um, I didn't think that the masses of people, for example, I didn't think that the overwhelming majority, the masses of people were that bad um, or that had such had such a um, low fortitude, low vigor, um, low courage. Uh, so it was definitely a period of, of realizing that, holy shit, I mean, it is really upon people like me and, and my peers in, in the Bitcoin space, but other people on us to do something like we can't absolutely under no circumstance rely on the vast majority of these of these masses to do anything. So it was it was definitely like, OK, it validates. I am validated on, on multiple levels the, the my business success, my personal lifestyle success are validating me. And I'm, I'm also validated by seeing everyone else around me um, being so disappointing. Uh, so, yeah, definitely self-discovery and self-appreciation. Also, it's definitely been a moment of self-appreciation. And I think a lot of us right now feel um, vindicated. We feel like we're gloating a little bit. Um, so that's what I've been a, a, a big roller coaster. Um, but ultimately, mostly right now, I, I definitely feel at peace. I have, I have a very strong peace of mind. I'm excited about the future. I'm optimistic about the future. Unlike most people in the fiat economy, um, I don't, I, I think, you know, uh, I'm well set up for myself, for my future family. Uh, so I feel very confident um, in the future. It's fucking awesome, man. I love to hear that. And, you know, as you said, I, and I think why your journey is so compelling is because you have kind of transcended the hesitation and the doubt and the hope, you know, the hoping that things will change and just gone full into solution mode. And, you know, that's why I, you know, have so much, or one of the reasons why I have so much respect for you and why I think people are interested in, in the, what you've been doing over the past year, but you're right that no matter if you do it the way that you have done it or the way that we're all contending with it. And you reference Peterson, he talks about this all the time. Like when the dominance of the previous culture, the traditional culture uh, decay, even if it's only in your mind, even if there's not consensus about that, but if they kind of fall apart, if the things that hold that together, the values, the principles, all that kind of stuff fall apart, then you have to reconstitute it on your own. You have to find a way to reintegrate you into the culture that you both are a part of, trying to construct and the, and the future that you see for it. And so that can be a very unnerving journey because you, you, you relinquish all the things that give you comfort and security first, and you're, you're somewhat naked 
And then you have to reconstruct and build that back up on, t- on top of yourself. And again, what I'm hearing from you over the last year is that like you've consciously done that at each step. And sometimes it's been uncomfortable and sometimes it's been whatever, but you've pushed forward a- a- and to-, to try to achieve just that. And, you know, I-, I love to hear that it's been such a rewarding journey for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you nailed it on the head. I mean, I think what I decided, I think it was about April and I decided I would not play the game. I decided I, I do not accept the rules of this game, uh, the social contract, the, uh, I call it uh, the live action role, role playing where that there's, an, there's a thing going on and you have to play the role. Um, you have, and what, frust, what frustrates people when you, when you don't uh, comply is not that you're breaking the rules, it's that you're not acknowledging the reality that they believe is the reality that they've based their lives on. So it's, it's not, it's, they don't like you for breaking the rules. They like you for shattering their illusions about what the world is um, right now. And that's, that's where I think the, uh, one of my first kind of like COVID criminal moments uh, was the invention of the exemption bracelet, right? So th- that I, I, I started to chronicle my adventures, breaking the rules and, and how I was able to go into stores without masks, take, take flights without masks, and just presenting an aura of exemption around myself, almost, you know, confusing people really with my with with just my my adamant statement like I refuse to play this. I'm exempt from your rules. I'm just you know I, I'm I'm not part of that reality. Um, so so yeah, that, that's then that's, that was I think that the big moment is is I will just refuse to play the uh, your game. That's it. Like the Jedi mind tricks, right? If you say it with enough like confidence and certainty, then people will just accept it. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, no, yes, 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 absolutely. I was just going to say the last thing about that is, you know, Peterson talks about the social, quote, articles of faith that a society is built on. And when you challenge those articles of faith, the people that, that still use them to erect their comfort and security see you as a threat, right? And as a result, you know, they criticize you, they deride you they try to compartmentalize you or something like that and you know of course what's happened over the last year is a perfect example of that especially for you know people like you and people in this space that have taken a more mm-hmm. different approach to things absolutely and you know i think uh, um the 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 moral and societal decay that we're witnessing um is 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 really Deep, more deeper rooted than I, uh, I had initially thought. Um, we had seen origins of this, uh, I think, with stuff like the climate change movement, where a large swath of the youth have internalized this narrative that um, the human being, Homo sapiens, is a destructive force on Earth and that um, we must be curbed uh, because uh, our actions are, you know, causing catastrophic climate change and that we as a species can, for example, um, uh, control the environment and that we have a more responsibility. And they've really internalized that almost as if it's th- the meaning of life is now for most people to have the least environmental impact on earth, for example. So their people had, don't, they, they, they were voided of, of meaning. The meaning, you build your house, you build your family, you build a business, you make your community better, you have impacts. But now all of that, meaningfulness that we used to have in our lives has been completely voided by the fact that we are in a uh, centralized planned economy uh, with fiat economics and fiat culture and um, 
the meaning, and then they try to fill it, obviously, with the, the, with the thing that made them feel heroic. In our society, there is a, a, a massive, massive risk aversion, massive aversion to risk. People are prevented from taking risks all the time. So there is very few opportunities to be a hero, which is in our tribal DNA, essentially, is we are striving to obviously reproduce and stay alive, but we're also striving to do heroic acts for uh, the tribe in order to obtain status, in order to obtain wealth, in order to obtain recognition in the tribe. Um, and these these are natural cravings that we have. Um, that's, that's what people always make up monsters and they always uh, there's always some invisible monster somewhere and you're the hero of your story fighting this monster. Um, so everyday heroism, like being a good father, like building your house, like building a business, like building a community, every source of daily hero heroism that we used to do has been completely removed and put in the domain custodianship of the state. So what is left for the modern adventurer to do? I mean, obviously now we have to slay this monster, which is climate change, or as we've seen now, we have to slay this monster, which is now the COVID pandemic. Anything that allows you to feel heroic is something you're going to latch onto, but these are just illusions, obviously. You know, if you talk, continue talking about Peterson, I mean, um, in his new book, Peterson has a really good example about a, a young lady um, which uh, uh, requests his help but as soon as, as they start talking, she starts going off about how she's worried about climate change and how um, all her life has been completely um, taken over and obsessed by, by this obsession to, to, to fight this, this climate injustice. And uh, because she's taken on this role on this new, 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 new social construct that she's attached her heroic self to this new social construct, obviously she doesn't have the energy, motivation or will to, um, to use her heroic self to better her own lifestyle and her immediate surroundings, which has an impact, a, a greater impact. Um, so, I mean, I think that I've, what I've tried to do is to completely opt out of this mindset entirely is no, I'm not going to, I have enough real problems right now and I'm looking for real solutions to these things. I'm looking for actual meaningful impacts. I don't want to let action role play behind my computer. I'm sick of it. Uh, so I'm going to um, forego the feeling of heroic action and fulfillment, which is essentially virtue signaling, uh, which, which is a, a real tangible feeling. People really do feel that. Um, and I'm going to forego that feeling, which I have identified as being false, as being a social construct for the real feeling of meaningfulness that I get um, from, for example, living, you know, the living in a community out here where I live in Central America, I really realize what it means now to have a community, right? In this, people don't have communities online anymore. They have these these dog whistling associations and coordination mechanisms. There, there's no sense of, um, for example, skin, the sense of skin in the game is very theoretical until you live in uh, the jungle when it rains. You literally have to call your neighbor. Your neighbor has to be your very good friend. Everybody here um, is dependent on on each other for for. Okay. There we go. I'm back. I don't, I don't know if it's your internet or mine, but. We'll, we'll, we'll work with uh, what we got. Yes, yes. Okay, so, right. So just, just to finish off that subject, essentially the, uh, the point is um, deciding not to be a live action role player. I can summarize that whole first section of an interview. That was, that was really what defines my last year is, is deciding not to be a live action role player and living my life consequently. Yeah, I think that's a, 
such an important thing. And, and there's so many uh, elements of outsourcing your vulnerabilities effectively to someone else that rob you of those experiences of community that you were talking about. Like you realize the value of relationships when you are uh, responsible for yourself, right? Because you realize you can't manage everything on your own, right? And so that creates and strengthens bonds between the people that you surround yourself with that you can mutually benefit one another. And, you know, why do you think we've lost such a sense of community in the world today? And everyone just is subservient to the, the proclamations of the state, because that's the, the supermarket entity, the Leviathan that, that, that softens all the edges for everyone. And they subconsciously, you know, uh, want that. And, uh, you know, I think Bitcoiners have stepped out of that and realized that there is no avoiding reality. You, you, have to, you have to face reality and you have to suffer the consequences of doing so. There's only, most people don't realize what you give up when you try to avoid those consequences that we, that modern society has erected. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how things are shifting. Let me, let me ask you this, like you've been down there for, do you, is, is there a specific place where you are, like the country, is that public knowledge or are you trying to keep that private? Uh, I mean, I think by now most people know that I am somewhere in Costa Rica uh, and that's, that, that's definitely where I'm staying uh, at the moment, although I've been uh, uh, visiting and exploring other countries in Central America as well. So I was going to ask you, like, again, before we get really into what's going on on the macro level, what is the plan right now? Because so many of us are scrambling, we're looking at making moves, you know, for, for whatever reason, didn't uh, pull the trigger as quickly as you did. But like, are you trying to create a permanent place down there where you can ride out what's going on? Or is this a temporary thing? Like what, what's on your horizon in terms of how you're thinking about everything moving forward? That, that's a very good question. Um, I think that uh, there's a major trade-off between being a sovereign individual that is traveling across the world and that is impervious to any sort of national jurisdiction. And, you know, one month he's in Colombia, the other month he's in Bali, the other month he's somewhere else, and it doesn't really matter to him. And uh, if one government, you know, uh, doesn't uh, suit his particular needs as a client, uh, he's going to go to another supplier elsewhere. You have to trade that off with having this sense of community that you build by having a long-term investment and skin in the game in a particular place. Um, so I'm leaning, I'm definitely leaning towards the, the second option. So I think um, we're at a point right now where uh, everybody needs to hunker down wherever they are. Um, at this point, if you haven't, you know, I don't want to say it's too late to change your life, obviously, and to move. Uh, I, I want to encourage people to do that. But most, important, most importantly, I, I think people need to be very comfortable. Well, okay, this is not jungle, going well. Jungle podcasting. <laughs> okay. Right, right, exactly. Um, so uh, I think the five years are going to, I don't think that anything is going to get better for the next five years, right? That's the short answer. Uh, what's the yeah. next plan? I don't think anything is going to get better the next five years. Um, I don't think travel is going to get a, a, any easier. If, if you look at the sovereign individual playbook, um, the, the way that the trend is for nation states to restrict the movement of citizens across borders uh, for obvious reasons, which is because that is how they are able to enforce their national policies, whether they are fiscal, monetary, or otherwise. Um, the the enforcement of these it, it's an emerger, it's an emergent phenomenon, right? For each nation state, these restrictions of travel, 
Um, it's not because there is an entity coordinating all nation states telling them to shut down their borders and to make it absolutely excruciating for, for people to travel and specifically uh, making it excruciating for you know, sovereign individuals that are into Bitcoin and Second Amendment and all the things um, for them to travel because they're going to refuse taking the vaccine, they're going to refuse taking PCR tests and so forth. Um, so I don't just link to the pandemic. Uh, obviously, the pandemic was the, the catalyst for this happening, um, but the next five years are going to be uh, under the guise of national security or other, other such matters. So, um, yeah, I'm not planning on coming back to the country. I'm going to hunker down over here. Uh, you know, I'm a 32-year-old, you know, male uh, with no kids, uh, no mortgage. Um, so for me, obviously, the, the playbook is to uh, accumulate as much stats as I can uh, right now and establish multiple streams of income uh, that are jurisdictionally independent um, so, you know, you can have a remote business somewhere in you know, Europe or, or North America or wherever you're from um, and then uh, establishing other sources of income um, in whatever local jurisdiction you are or multiple sources of income and making sure that um, you uh, are able to uh, survive any kind of jurisdiction over the next couple of years. So um, definitely not bullish on personal freedoms and the fiat economy. I'm extremely bearish. And I'm expecting, you know, the, the shit to hit the fan metaphorically in the next two years. And we've always been saying two years, all the libertarians have always been saying since as long as I can remember, the government is printing too much money. This is unsustainable. We're in so much debt. The economy is going to collapse in two years. We've been saying this since like 2012. Um, Hyper Bitcoinization is just around the corner. This is the super cycle. Everybody, I believe this time. Uh, this time is probably the right one. Um, I don't know if you want to dig into to economics right away, uh, but um, I, I do. I definitely do. Just, the, the... just last point, last point on on what yeah. you're building there. Two things like, do you think because if you leading by example here and doing something like that, there's going to be tons of people that are looking for something similar that may indeed want to flock to the very community that you're building. Right. That's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. And the other thing is, mm -hmm. is like right now, obviously, a lot of people going to Texas and Florida, red state, U.S., Second Amendment, you know, more freedoms, Bitcoiner, a lot of Bitcoiners there. Do you what do you think of those jurisdictions for weathering what you see coming? Right. So, I mean, I'm not building a citadel. I have kind of abandoned this idea um, I, uh, of, of building a, a kind of Bitcoin citadel where all the Bitcoiners are going to come. Together because we have similar values and, and eventually we'll kind of uh, become some kind of independent uh, little commune or something like that. I've definitely abandoned this idea. Uh, there's multiple reasons. First of all, um, Bitcoiners are all extremely independent and um, strong-headed individuals, and you know there can't be too many. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's hard to, it's hard it's hard to get shit done with people that are that are all. Other alphas, right? It's like this community is not big enough for the like two of us, <laughs> right? No, exactly. And um, but I mean, I think that, and that's just a personal uh, a personal choice. Uh, and and I think also like a lot. To to be perfectly honest, I don't think a lot of Bitcoiners have the same. I have a very hippie lifestyle. Um, you know, I I do med. You know, the kind of medicine that I use is is you know what YouTube would be flagging down as, uh, you know, fake medicine uh, using uh, fruits and vegetables and, and essential oils and, and physical therapies and trying to avoid, you know, medication and that kind of stuff. 
Um, I'm uh, I definitely like living in kind of a more of a hippie commune uh, than a than a hardcore uh, maximalist uh, carnivore type community. Uh, so. But um, there are a lot of people who are build, building these things. And I mean, they exist whether or not we, uh, we acknowledge them or label them as such. Uh, the amount of private communities that exist in Central America that are populated almost exclusively by you know, North American or European expats, um, they share their own infrastructure, their own aqueducts, their own electricity supply. I mean, it's, it's a lot different in so-called developing countries than it is in, in North American or European countries where out here, I mean, it's not it's it's not something special or unique or or kind of like uh, uh, e even an uh, uh, you know uh, to have a, a community with a private guard, uh, private water supply, private electricity. This is just something that's really really common. Uh, so uh, and in terms of the in terms of the citadels, there's um, you know I think. Yes, these things will, will exist, uh, but I've abandoned the idea just of, of me being the person who was doing it. I thought, I, I genuinely thought during the last summer, um, during the height of the, the, the lockdown fear, uncertainty and doubt where um, you know, this kind of totalitarian regime was just thrown upon us. And uh, I really did think, for example, of building something out in the Rockies or, um, uh, but I, I, I also believed that uh, the people would rise up way before it got as bad as it did today. I thought, for example, that, okay, it's only a matter of months. I really thought last summer, it's only a matter of months be before some guy loses his job and he's gonna, you know, take a gun and start shooting people and people economic destruction is gonna uh, just finally wear people down. And we're only gonna have to hunker down for a couple of months or a year, year and a half. And then things are going to get better as you know people rise up, and there's new opportunities for more people of um, uh, governments or something like that, or or political parties that are populist would start to uh, to gain massive support. And and would, I mean, I really thought it would be temporary at the at the very beginning, like temporary in terms of like a year, year and a half. But now I think the horizon uh, for this whole thing is is more around like five years. Yeah. So. Many people may not be particularly interested in this, but you can work this into your macro uh, framework because you talk a lot about Canada and obviously we're both from Canada, so it's more relevant to us. And nobody here seems to have any appreciation for just how screwed this country is. And you know, you are one of the loudest voices on Twitter that often talks about that. So I'd love to get your opinion on where Canada is at and then you can bleed that into what you're seeing for the five years that you're talking about in the rest in the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started to be to become extremely bearish in Canada around 2018. Uh, before prior to 2018, I mean, I wasn't bullish on Canada at all. Uh, but I didn't think the situation was so uh, so so um, un, uh, inescapable. So I mean, Canada's economy is driven right now almost exclusively. Uh, by real estate and infrastructure, uh, which is driven almost exclusively by um, money printing and foreign investments from places like China. Our, our entire economy has basically, all the productive parts of the economy have been slowly stripped away. First, first of all, like that's, that's, the, that's the first conclusion of Canada is like any, all, all, the, all the sectors that used to make us extremely competitive and extremely interesting globally have slowly been uh, stripped away. We're talking about the national uh, uh, natural resources sectors, uh, primarily, but you know, manufacturing and 
and aerospace engineering. I mean, we don't build much anymore that the world really wants. Like what does Canada really build that the world wants? Canada doesn't even, isn't even able to, to extract and, and sell and export what the world actually wants, which is stuff like, you know, forestry, oil and gas, mines and, and all sorts of energy. Um, so all the productive parts of the society have been completely stripped off. Second of all, the, the country itself appears to be right now more of, a, a, of an actual fiction than, than, than a real thing. If you look at the, um, the whole fracturing of Canada as an entity between you know, the West, the East, Quebec, Ontario, um, it just appears that these kind of like globalist post-national states, which are, um, you know, Canada is kind of a coalition state, the coalition between the West and the, the St. Lawrence, uh, Ontario people and the Quebec people and the Maritimes. Uh, it seems like this kind of coalition, the illusion is completely shattering. I, I, the, the country doesn't really feel like a country anymore. I mean, what is holding Canada together? I used to joke that the national hockey team was, you know, us winning the Olympics is basically what's holding the nation together most of the time. Uh, when you talk about, you know, Quebecers, for example, like, oh, well, you know, if we separate from Canada, like what's going to happen to the national Olympic team? You know, is, are we going to have our own team or is Canada? That's what people used to care about the most. You know, all this fiction is, is falling apart. Now you have this insane levels of money printing. Then honestly, I don't think the world, the modern world, we're talking about like a G7, G8 country, you know, there's not many comparisons to have. You have the EU, you have the UK, you have Canada, you have, uh, you know, Australia's kind of comparable size. I mean, if you look at our levels of money printing, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite insane. It, it's quite ludicrous. So um, I think about half of the government budget right now comes from money printing and the rest comes from other sources of income, such as taxes. So um, we are, have extremely high levels of personal debt. Uh, when you look at the national debt, uh, what people don't factor in is you have municipal debt and then you have provincial debt, you have national debt, and then you have uh, individual debt. And if you accumulate, I mean, nobody has, I'm on my phone now, this should be a bit better. Okay. That seems better. All right, go for it. Okay. So where was I? Sorry about well, that. We, 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 we were talking about the state of Canada, right? And, and we were saying that basically, you know, there's so much debt and there's so much, uh, the policy is just insane in terms of not prioritizing things that actually improve the economic situation. I mean, you, you speculated like what brings Canada together, what forms the national identity at mm -hmm. this point. It's almost like a mm -hmm. massive virtue signal, right? Like Trudeau's policies yeah. are all about virtue signaling. And then, you know, Canada's always yeah. had this somewhat of like holier than thou sort of attitude, especially in relation to the U S right. And now with the pandemic and with everything that's going on and with climate change, it seems like that's just on a whole nother level where somehow that virtue signal is more important than the reality of living. Like you mentioned debt, this province, provincial debt in this province is $94,000 per person. I mean, the, and so this is why I wanted to ask you, right? Because there's, there's no way out of this. There's just no way out of this. Mm -hmm. You can't borrow enough yes. money. You can't print enough. If you print too much money, you get hyperinflation. If you borrow more, if interest rates go up, you can't service the debt. There's, you, you can only tax people so much and that is obviously coming, but you can't tax enough to, to get out of this. So like, that's why I'm wondering like when the end game plays out, like right now it's a relative period yeah. of stability, even though there's, you know, things are shifting, prices are going up. There's a lot of money printing, but people don't really see the, the tsunami that's coming. Like, and as you said, like we always think for a long time, we thought it was in two years time. And I think now there's an inclination to be like, 
yes, 10, 15 years time, we'll have a problem, but it won't happen soon. And it might be the, like the scenario has been flipped on its head. Like we were so used to it not happening that now we're actually yeah. too conservative in the prediction. Yes, I mean, it, it's, it's getting quite difficult to predict what's going to happen because um, when I'm predicting what's going to happen, I'm, I'm kind of basing myself on, the premises I'm basing myself on is um, psychology and what I believe with other humans to be like. And I, kinda, I, I think I've kind of like become more bearish on other humans as general. Um, but so what's the play here? I mean, it's, it's got to be either a bail-in or some kind of bailout. Okay, so I mean, the 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 country cannot be allowed. Countries cannot be allowed to go bankrupt in like a U, USSR style bankruptcy where they just kind of like sell off their assets to rich people of other countries. And in essence, that's what you know what usually happens when a country goes bankrupt. They just kind of like sell the infrastructure, and other rich people just buy them up um, and become you know the next government thirty years forward. Um, but this can't be allowed to happen on a global scale because if you look at who's in debt, all the European countries are in debt, all the North American states are mostly in debt. I mean, the whole Western world is 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 on the verge of bankruptcy. So we're not going to have the traditional, you know, bailout that we used to have, um, uh, or just declaring bankruptcy and liquidating your assets for someone else to buy. I think it's just it has to be a global bail-in. It has to be a gigantic bail-in from the citizens themselves. So. What we're going to see is slowly, I think it's going to be a slow siphoned bail-in where um, via inflation, that's essentially it. Uh, so we're, we're going to continue the inflation. We're going to continue to buy, um, devalue people's you know, pensions, devalue people's savings. Uh, and <laughs> it's, what's the playbook? It's hard to say what's the playbook because, I mean, do they even know what they're doing? Do governments know what's happening? Or are they just, is it just a gigantic emergent order that's going on, a gigantic spontaneous reaction of people just thinking extremely short term? So what can we do? Because if you think of it like this, it's a very scary prospect to be a politician these days, right? So you get elected and you inherit this government that's just, you can't do anything. I'm thinking about, for example, the situation of Costa Rica, I think like 40% of their GDP is used to pay off um, the interest on the debt, like China wouldn't even loan them money apparently. And, uh, you know, all, all, all there's, there's zero margin. There's like zero margin. And I can't, I think that's, I think that's why the politicians are so keen to jump on the COVID bandwagon because that's something they can actually physically do. It's literally the only thing they can do. Like there's, there's, there's no funding problem to, to fight the COVID pandemic. Um, because think of the fact that they're extremely governments and bureaucrats, are always trying to justify their existence. So they always need to be doing stuff and they are extremely inefficient at it. So if they, if they want to show results, they need an insane amount of money and time and resources, okay? So these, these people are just trying to show results in any kind of results whatsoever to justify their existence. And um, the pandemic was, allows, is the only, it's the, it's the only thing, right? Climate change was another thing that allowed them to, for example, raise taxes and, and do all sorts of spending programs like because the people would tolerate these these um, these siphoning of funds because they were made to feel bad, to feel guilty. I think that's also one of the great themes of 2021 is the the cultural elites, uh, bureaucratic elites, academic elites, and government elites have all spontaneously converged to the conclusion that in order to control the masses, we need them, we need to make them feel very guilty about what they do, forcing them to do stuff like we used to, like 70 years ago, will not work. Um, uh, you can't force people into comply. You need to make them feel 
that into compliance. I mean, I think one of the craziest things that we've all seen is we're looking around and we're all on Twitter, we're all on social media saying like, am I the only one thinking this? Like, shouldn't we just like rise up and rebel against this thing? Um, uh, uh, you know, we've all kind of been conditioned away uh, from, you know, fighting injustice to become uh, our main motivational driver. But, and now it's more like avoiding shame and avoiding um, uh, negative peer validation from our peers. That's like the, the one motivational driver. So ultimately, you know, what drives people now is, okay, so what are other, you know, what are other people doing? What are other people going to think about me? Um, and, you know, uh, I, I just don't want to, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to feel bad. And you've got this extremely intolerant minority of like lunatics that have latched on to the mainstream consensus of governments, bureaucrats, academics that are like, okay, let's make the masses, let's make the people feel really bad so we can control their life and tell them how to live their life, which is what we really like to do. And then you have all sorts of little, you know, groups, which are usually progress, progressive groups, collective, collectivist groups that are like, oh, great. So I can also become one of the enforcers of this consensus by screaming at people. Now I have a, now I have a, a moral vindication uh, to be to be a hysteric screeching at people in public is no longer seen as being um, a, a crazy outlier. Right? It's it's absolutely it, it's a virtue and it's a government approved virtue and it's the kind of virtue that literally will end up over. Will, this will get you rewarded. And is like this kind of behavior is getting rewarded. Those people are getting hired. Those people are, are absolutely benefiting from, from this system. Um, so there is a strong, strong incentive to, to just emulate those people, right? So how do you get promoted right now and get a $350,000 salary? I mean, you work for, in Canada, you work for the public service, you work for some kind of university, some kind of some, from, from some institution. And especially if you want to rise up in the corporate world, you have to follow that cultural norm and that, that, that be, those kinds of behaviors, which are, um, hysterical anti-individualism, uh, um, virtue collectivist virtue, virtue signaling. So these things are accelerating, and they are the root causes of the demise of our economy and the Western civilization. If earlier, we were talking about you were making a comment about the community, like what is it that has uh, uh, made us lose this sense of community, and the community was replaced by the all-seeing uh, power and uh, and and the, the benevolent uh, motherly, fatherly figure of the state. And I mean, it is personal responsibility. That's what's happened. People have abdicated personal responsibility um, to the state, their, person, their personal responsibilities to the state. And that is the social contract that they've signed. It says, we will abdicate our social our responsibilities to the state. But in order for us to be able to abdicate our responsibilities to the state, you also must do that. Because we are creating right now a new narrative, a new reality, uh, a new normal in which everyone's actions impact everyone else. Uh, and as a side note, it's very interesting what they've done. Um, they, they've turned libertarian principles of non-aggression on their head um, in order uh, from a cultural and narrative standpoint. So what they've done is, is they've extended the domain of negative externality of one individual's of, of one's individual actions to, to anything. So back in the day, your freedom used to end when the freedom of others began, right? Um, that is, you know, the non-aggression principle uh, in as vulgarized as much as we can. But if you redefine like what 
what my freedoms are, you know, uh, it started, you know, in the seventies when the freedom, uh, the right to education started, the right to, to healthcare started, right? So now we have the right to education, you have the right to healthcare. So now other people have obligations to you to finance your healthcare, to finance your education and to provide education. And now if you, if you move fast forward like 30 years, you know, people are saying, I have the right to live in an environment without climate change. So your freedom of doing stuff that may contribute to climate change ends where my freedom to live in a world without climate change begins. Same thing for the virus. So, you know, your freedom to do whatever you want ends where my freedom to not kill my, my grandmother, you know, begins. So they've, they've extended essentially um, the realm of, of individual action into collective responsibility and as a side note, I think that the beginning of the end for Western civilization was the, that was the socialization of healthcare. I think all of this is rooted in the socialization and nationalization of healthcare for the simple fact that if other people pay for my health, they have a right to say about how I live my life, period. And that's the argument that they've been using um, uh, to some degree here. It's a well, uh, if you go out and get sick, you will... Uh, clog up our hospitals, uh, you know, no matter the fact that in Canada, for example, private hospitals are illegal, there are none, there's some clinics, but there's no private hospitals. But if you do something, you, I will have to pay for it. So I get to have a say in your lifestyle. And this is the trade that people have been, this is a social contract that we've all kind of signed, you know, supposedly at birth, um, where we're trading this personal responsibility in exchange for this uh, safety net. And, uh, uh, and I, think, I, think that was, I think that was what led to the, just to this moral decay. Um, and I think what we have as a, you know, for example, in the community that I'm living in right now, um, personal responsibility is extreme. I mean, if you fuck up down here, you're in serious trouble. Uh, if your car breaks down in the middle of a storm out here, you're in a, a world of pain. If the electricity runs out, no one has cash in the village. Um, credit is extremely important. Like you need to borrow money all the time here. You need to, you, payments are very inefficient. And, and I think one of the things that I've realized out here also is in order to, um, you know, fix some of the, in, uh, many of the inefficiencies of the payment system are solved just by trusting other people in your community to, to lend and borrow just based on social credit. Uh, it's extremely efficient at a small scale to use social credits to borrow money. I'll tell you that. Uh, no interest or nothing in most cases. Uh, definitely better than DeFi in, in many respects. Uh, so I think I'll just kind of stop on that tangent. But I mean, uh, in, terms of, in terms of just Canada, man, I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, it's so, it's so hard to predict. And sometimes, some days I wake up and I'm like, okay, well, you know, China's just going to fucking take it over. Honestly, I'm like, at, at, at this point, what else, who else has the liquidities to take over all the obligations that, that they have? At any point, I'm like, okay, well, this isn't going to happen because none of the other nation states of the world are going to allow Canada to be taken over by China. Uh, that will have a rippling effect. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's also hard for nation states to have arbitrage with each other. They're, you know, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a prisoner's dilemma. They're all in the prisoner's dilemma. Like, hey, guys, we're all in debt to each other and to our citizens. At any point in time, the entire Ponzi can collapse. So if we allow our citizens, if we, if we start to play against each other, Right. And, you know, you know, if I adopt the Bitcoin standard or if I cut taxes to a minimal and I suddenly free the entire economy and I remove all regulations, everyone's going to move to my jurisdiction. Right. And the, all the other nation states 
are going to say, well, you know, if I do that, the other can do it harder than me. No one wants to have a race to free market libertarianism at all. Like there's no, there, there, there's, there's, it's in no one's interest. So I don't, I don't believe that we're going to see, for example, what we saw in the sovereign individual necessarily play out where states were going to, I think, I think it's going to, they're, they're just going to go for a global, global bail-in and it's just going to, it's essentially the, they're going to opt for the worst outcome possible that has the most collateral damage possible on the population. So I think we have to expect that out of, out of every scenario that government leaders and corporate elites and media elites can pick, it will be the one that will save their asses the most for the longest period of time, which is going to be the one that inflicts the most harm on the general population at large. Yeah. And I mean, don't think for a second, look, coincidence or not, don't think for a second they're not going to leverage uh, the pandemic to abdicate their responsibility for all the stuff that was brewing prior to that, right? Like this will be blamed for all the financial turbulence to come. It'll be blamed for the inflation. It'll be blamed for everything. And then, you know, through a bait and switch, they'll probably introduce CBDCs or whatever the solution ends up being. Uh, yeah completely yeah. predicated on what had to be done as a result of the pandemic, pandemic, which is probably why many are still failing to capitulate in the face of poor evidence of efficacy of lockdowns and all this other stuff, you know? So it's, yes. Yes. but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping because as you said, like this started a long time ago, right? With socialized medicine and all what, what this has done for some has laid bare the state of affairs, like to see things in the, in such extreme representation and look like 90%, yes. 95, whatever it is there, it's not going to change at all. They're going to lean into the, the, the delusion, let's say, but some are starting to say, this is just, this is too much. And when, once that flip switches, you actually see how it's been brewing and how it's been too much for a long time. And I think that is part of the reason why more and more people in conjunction with number go up and a lot of other stuff, people are starting to see the merits and the value in Bitcoin. And so like, it's, it's always darkest before the dawn, right? Like things have to get yes. bad for people to realize the necessity and the value of the good. Like that's just a kind of a universal, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the kind of saying that I've adopted and uh, as a mantra, I guess, is the circle, the cycle must be allowed to play out. Um, so, so this is essentially my, my, uh, my way to stay Zen. I mean, I get quote unquote triggered a lot by these injustices that I see specifically. There's, there's things that, that really do make me furious and, and sad and depressed. Like when they, when I see stuff studies about, about children that are committing suicide. Um, I mean, I've had a family member commit suicide and it's always been a very, uh, um, I mean, it's not reflected in the statistics that the damage that a suicide will do to what's a family, going, to a community. What's going on is a crime against humanity. And it's, I think there's cases yeah. being brought to that effect. And I don't think most people will yes. share that opinion until decades from now when it becomes obvious through the lens of history, which it always does, you know? Yes. And, it, and it's, it's overwhelmingly compelling, I think, uh, for people like us. I mean, it, it's such a grave such a sense of injustice. I see children here, for example, that are coming from um, North America or Europe with their parents on vacation and the parents will be walking around maskless and the children will be still wearing their masks um, voluntarily on the beach, mm. on the street. Um, 
I, I feel like the children have been traumatized into feeling guilty for other people's problems. Uh, one of the most horrible things that's ever happened, I think, in, the la in the, this past year and a half is convincing everyone that we had to do this to save our grandmothers. Because the logical conclusion is that if someone's kid dies because his grandmother had COVID, he's, he's going to replay in his mind all the series of events that I may have gone, I took off my mask in the school bus, maybe I gave it to someone that gave it to a nurse, you know, and, and, and you're crit, I mean, it's, so my Zen, my Zen moment, my Zen philosophy is the cycle must be allowed to play out. Bitcoin is a force of creative destruction. I mean, we always knew this from a theory, theoretical standpoint. And even when I was thinking about hyper-Bitcoinization since the concept came out in 2014, I mean, what was the world gonna look like when Bitcoin took over? I always thought it's going to be ugly. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be economic collapse. It's going to be all sorts of unemployment. I didn't conceive of a, of a global like face diaper wearing dystopia where everybody's, you know, somehow you know, standing two feet, you know, anyway, where you have to do the, the, the rituals before getting into a restaurant, put on your, your, you know, you do some kind of weird ritual. I, di I didn't believe this. I, I didn't have to imagine something like this, but I had to imagine something quite awful um, would happen. And uh, yes, in order for Bitcoin to, to go to a hyper-Bitcoinization level uh, and to go to the levels that we're all in it for, um, the fiat economy must be destroyed. The culture must be absolutely destroyed. Uh, there must be uh, the, the, the switch, you know, people's entire identity, their, their entire life is tied to the fiat monetary system. I mean, if the fiat monetary system goes away, literally everything that they rely on is completely gone. I mean, it's going to be a horribly traumatizing event for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. So that is going to be delayed for, for, for a long time. So, but as the good possible. thing is that as long as possible, for sure. Um, the good thing is though, as a Bitcoiner, I mean, you've already, as a Bitcoiner, you've already done what you had, you know, most of the, the problem has been solved by the fact that you bought Bitcoin. Um, it's just such a simple thing to do with such a massive, ROI in terms of, of like, I'm sure all of listeners have bought Bitcoin already and they ha if they haven't, like, what the hell are you waiting for? You, have to, <laughs> you absolutely have to acquire Bitcoin at all costs, um, including 47,000 US dollars uh, or 50 or 40 or whatever the price is now. Um, um, so the good thing about that is that, A, there is something that will grow back from this uh, catastrophe. So uh, it's not as if we're going to have to uh, figure out while the system collapses, what we do, people are going to be able to easily jump onto an alternative, which is the timing couldn't be better, honestly. I mean, Bitcoin's been out there for like 11, 12 years. So it's kind of like made, uh, made the rounds already. It's, it's demonstrated. It's, Bitcoin is not ready for mass adoption, I believe. But I think in terms of people's willingness to switch to Bitcoin, it's ready for mass adoption. I think that, I think the masses are, are mentally ready with the possibility of switching to something like Bitcoin. I don't think that's like far-fetched, um, even though Bitcoin's not ready. But um, yes, I mean, uh, the, the switch to Bitcoin is, is, is obviously going to be uh, the one thing that saves us. And what, a really nice phenomenon that I've observed, which makes me very happy, um, and I said this on other podcasts, but I'll say it again, I, I kind of switched my philosophy on Bitcoin adoption. I don't know, I guess maybe, again, around when I became more toxic maximalist, like early 2018, late 2017, something like this, where I realized that um, 
Bitcoin's main asset is the soul and skin in the game of the people who hold it, meaning the political capital, the financial capital, you know, to make it really simple, you know, guys like guys like Michael Saylor, that's that's a good example, you know, so 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 he's a very great acquisition to be a Bitcoiner because he has resources, he has willpower, and he's obviously very good. So um, you know, Bethany Hamilton, I loved it. I loved it so much when she announced that she was a, a Bitcoiner. I had seen her following me on Twitter for a little while. So I was guessing she was going to eventually come out as a Bitcoiner because why else would, we, would she be following me on Twitter? But, um, you know, influential people with courage, with moral integrity, like guys like Jordan Peterson, these are great acquisitions for Bitcoin. And um, this is the way that I've modeled my, my Bitcoin adoption model. You know, if you look at Bull Bitcoin's um, webpage, we're very, very clear about our values, our ethics. You know, we will not accept uh, shit corners as clients and so forth. Um, so Bitcoin has targeted a certain subset of the population to become early adopters. I mean, the, the distribution of early adopters in Bitcoin is not equal in all. And I'm not talking about, talking about demographics like country or jurisdiction or age or stuff like that. It's, it's actually extremely diverse. Um, but there is a certain type of mind propensity for risk people that are you know criminal minds and the kind of people that would have gladly jumped onto a ship to cross the ocean to go um, conquer and populate uh, the new world um, this is the kind of people that bitcoin has targeted uh, whether it be radical libertarian or criminals or early silicon valley kind of people or wall street douchebag types of people what we all have in common is, is, is a propensity for risk and risk-taking and um, at least some, some, some awareness of what goes on in the world and some propensity to take, to take action before someone else. Uh, and these are, the, these are the early adopters of Bitcoin. And these are the people that are going to emerge from this crisis with a very large amount of wealth, legitimacy, because at some point people are going to stop saying, oh, you got into Bitcoin because you were lucky. People are going to be saying, oh, shit, you got into Bitcoin. Oh, my God. Like, can you hire me? You know what I mean? It's going to be a very, uh, a, nobody's going to question uh, you being lucky. I think one day for, for being an early Bitcoin adopter, you're going to definitely going to be more of a respected figure. Um, and you're going, to, you're going to emerge from this crisis with a mandate, right? Because if you're, you're going to be looking around and you're going to be saying, okay, so who else right now? has the resources to rebuild the world well you got the fiat cantillionaires who are still rich they are still rich and they're going to try to rebuild the world in our in their image after this crisis is over the fiat cantillionaires will still be there uh, unless somehow my 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 um you know contempt for, for the human race diminishes and i and they actually get uh, the, the population rises up and starts to storm their offices and, and burn down government buildings and, <laughs> and eliminates these people from, from, from the socio-political or economic or corporate world entirely, they're still going to be there. Um, so we're going to emerge from this pandemic with a, a resources and, and a defined mission, which is to rebuild the economy using the Bitcoin standard and, um, and a lot of motivation to do so. So when, I'm, when I say I'm bearish in the next, for the next five to 10 years, that is proportionally how bullish I am, right? To what is pulse hyper Bitcoinization. So this new Bitcoin standard world that we're all striving to build a world of low time preference, a world, a world of fair, fairness and justice and personal responsibility and skin in the game and, 
and um, and decent, you know, uh, decentralized uh, planning, not central planning. Um, this this beautiful vision that we have. I mean, honestly, it's obviously what keeps me going, right? If you, if yeah. you ask, like, what keeps me going at night, it's certainly not, you know, the enjoying the little pleasures of life in in a uh, in a um, like carpe diem sense. Like, what keeps me going is the thought that in twenty to thirty years my future kids are going to be fucking bad asses. They're going to be the next, you know, barren class. And we're going to be, you know, you know, what's missing in our society. It's, it's, it's builders, right? It's just builders. That's what's missing. People are not builders or mutras. And I hate to be just like repeating what, you know, what Ayn Rand so eloquently put forth in Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead and, and so many other literature that we all know, but you know, I don't feel I have much to add to Ayn Rand in that sense. I mean, what's missing is just builders. And what excites me is that we have created, our civilization has shifted towards favoring rent-seeking as the optimal behavior to get what you want. Um, and it's very complex processes by which this you know, came to be. But obviously, you know, the lack of responsibility for your actions uh, is what enables at a massive scale rent-seeking because rent-seeking is a destructive behavior for which you have none of the negative consequences. But I mean, the, the this whole society of favoring rent-seeking, which is also extremely well described by, by Savedean in his book, The Bitcoin Standard. I mean, what he is described, or which I assume will be even better described in his upcoming book, The Fiat Standard. Um, so this whole process of de-responsabilization de of the human individual um, uh, the people that are very well positioned to thrive in a post um, in a post absence of skin in the game world are the are us Bitcoiners. So um, I think at, I, in, at some degree, even it feels like we're chosen. I mean, I don't want to get too too religious uh, right now, but I mean, during the last year, I have had some intense period of re reflection. Where, for example, I was camping out in the Rocky Mountains and I was like really thinking, holy shit, I mean, this is literally God's mission for me. I mean, uh, I started to, to think a lot about also the, just the, the, the Old Testament and uh, uh, analogies and metaphors. And, and for example, uh, uh, an episode of the Bible I really like is um, the cleansing of the temple by Jesus. I think it was, this, this was a, a very, very important um, part of, of Jesus's uh, passage and life is is. Okay, having kicked out physically with violence, the sludge essentially from the temple, the scum, the rent, essentially what he's describing is rent-seeking behavior. So the money changers, mm -hmm. money lenders that are engaging in rent-seeking behavior um, and kicking, kicking them out of the temple because they do not belong there. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, sometimes I, I, I think about these things and I say, all right, so not only are we well-positioned as individuals and this is great, like let's tap ourselves on the back guys, we really did well for ourselves. Not only is, it, is, it, is that what's kind of driving me right now, but it's also why, why were we made this way? Why, 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 why was I born with these capabilities and, and everything just, just, I look back at my life and my trajectory of a, as a Bitcoiner and it's almost as if this whole, this whole adventure, this whole story was leading up and preparing me to this, to this moment where the, the ultimate vindication happens, the economy collapses, hyper-Bitcoinization um, happens, and we are the ones who are left to rebuild in our image. Um, so that's something very positive and very uh, hopeful that we can have. But the downside of that is kind of like the same as Noah's Ark story. 
where you have an, a very large collateral damage among on people that are, you know, to some degree innocent. It's hard to say that most people are innocent nowadays when you have access to the internet and you have access to knowledge. Um, so it's very tempting to think that a lot of people are complicit and there's no such thing as innocence in this day and age. But I've changed my mind on that. A lot of people are, are just are just don't have the intellectual uh, capacity or resources or them to realize uh, that they're they're complicit in a system. Um, so these are these are people that are innocent. And it's going to be a large collateral damage. And you know that. Also, a side note, and that, that's also why I'm so anti-shitcoin, um, because the process of hyper-Bitcoinization is going to cause a lot of collateral damage on innocent people uh, for all of the fiat currencies to become gradually eliminated in favor of a global Bitcoin standard. Um, so the shitcoins are having the exact same effect the, the, the experimentation that we're having with shitcoins as an alternative to fiat money also has a very large um, uh, impact on people that are innocent, right? So that's kind of the, down, the downside of hyper-Bitcoinization and us being in such a favorable position afterwards is that a lot of people need to suffer for this to happen because our, the, you know, the wealth that we gain by sitting on our Bitcoin is not wealth that we created. We didn't create any wealth uh, from going to from or almost none, you know, from going from, from two hundred dollars uh, to fifty grand or something like that, we accumulated the wealth of others. The wealth of, of the wealth of others was devalued in our favor. Um, so uh, yeah, we didn't create create that much wealth, but eventually we were going to be the ones that have to create the wealth because we're going to be the ones with the capital. I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about. Look, like we always build ourselves into the lives we both create for ourselves and into the emergent society that we participate in. It's unavoidable, whether that's most of the time that's subconscious or most of that process is subconscious. And some of it for the more conscientious people or for the more considerate people is a, is a conscious process. And, you know, you describing this is an um, this is an emergent anomaly. Right. And we are the first to encounter it in its naked form and try to integrate it into our understanding of things. And we're finding that it's both discombobulating us to a certain degree with regards to our previous perception of things, and it's reconstituting things. And I think we would all make the case grounded in a greater form of truth and even a greater form of good. And so it's natural to think about that thing in terms of you know, the bigger questions about who you are, what this thing is, and what the, con the, the connection between the two represents. And so that's why I'm so interested and fascinated in pursuing this phenomenon through its changes as represented in the individual, because like that tells us a lot about the thing. But I think it's Peterson that says in his book, like you can know a thing by the action that's motivated in its presence, right? The things that people do in its pre presence can tell you about the motivational significance of a thing. And uh, that this thing is having that effect is so is so promising because we will that future world that we're talking about whether it's 5 10 15 20 years from now we are going to construct the world based on who we are we will build the world into ourselves as we always have done so the real the real kicker here the real important thing is who the fuck are we like what kind of a world are we going to build and this is the transformation that's happening right now. And you mentioned all these people like Sailor and Bethany Hamilton and stuff like these people are being drawn in. They're the first. And then they're 
they're creating a doorway for the people that follow them or for their communities or whatever. And that doorway is tiny at first, a hedge against inflation, uh, a long-term savings account or whatever, whatever. But it opens up into all these other potentially meaningful routes that these people can go down until they find like they, they, all, they all dissipate and then they all converge. And then you ask yourself those big questions about what could possibly do that? What could possibly have that effect? And you, I don't have to tell you, but like this, this thing is transformative. And that's, what's so, that's yes. what I'm so hopeful about because this thing transforms you in what I believe is a very positive way. And if this thing continues to win, then we're going to take people that are capitalized that have been transformed in a, in a positive way. And they're going to imbue that and build that into whatever it is they do, whether it's on a small individual community level or a broader scale, like, you know, global companies or jurisdictions and stuff like that. And that's how, that's how we wind up in a better place in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, it's hard to describe just how much Bitcoin changes you. Um, because if, you know, if, if I'm trying to, I, I don't re remember most of what my former self was we like. This yesterday. I, I really it's hard to relate it, to yes, your pre, and I, to your fiat self, right? The pre pre rabbit so hole hard. self. Wow, it's it's so it's so difficult. I mean, I've had my brain rewired in so many ways. Bitcoin was a was a big rewiring of my brain, but I think reactivating my you know, I want to say inner masculinity a couple of years ago really starting to really starting to work out and really starting to think of my role as as a man right so what is my role as a man not just what is my role as a citizen or what is my role as a bitcoiner but as as a human homo sapiens male um those those kinds of 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 uh realizations were um were were instrumental but bitcoin specifically it's hard i i feel like I look at pictures of my old self. I look at things that I used to write. I was so less, I was so confused. I was so confused. I mean, I think that's what, I think that's what I, this is the, the difference of my fiat self and my, in my current self is the level of certitude and, and confidence uh, in what I'm doing and, and kind of like an unshaken belief that I can do anything, right? Uh, also, the realization that you can manifest stuff into reality by working towards and dedicate your attention to things. Most people don't dedicate their attention to anything constructive enough for them to be able to witness what happens when you dedicated your, 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 your attention to something constructive. And, and when I think some, something constructive, I'm talking about specifically like, okay, so working towards Bitcoin and building on Bitcoin and, and dedicating everything to that. At some point, you can't help but check, you know, have the feeling that I manifested this into reality like it didn't exist and i wished it and i and i and i worked towards it um bitcoin's transformation on an intellectual level is just i'm so happy i'm just honestly I, i'm just so grateful to be a bitcoiner and I, and i'm so yeah. grateful to have been also an early bitcoiner enough that i had the entire process of learning i think at some point the rabbit hole does end i don't know when exactly i would put it around you know, 20,000 hours or something of that nature, you know, like six, seven years at some point. But I'm really grateful to have had this journey because now after you go through the Bitcoin journey of, for another example is how I value my time, how I value um, my, my opportunity costs. It's so different right now. For I'll give you a, a good snippet of what I'm thinking now. I have two, uh, two heuristics to value my, my options. 
It's the return on bullshit principle and the bullshit drag principle. So when, when you're no longer a fiat slave and your income is no longer determined by the amount of hours that you put in to your salary, you start to think about what is, what is it that got me to make you know, all of these decisions that were successful into me becoming wealthy. Sometimes it feels like luck because you're like, oh, well, I did, I went all in on one project or one thing at one time, or I did this one move that changed my entire life. And you don't get that by luck. You get that by having your attention focused on your surroundings, by understanding the emergent order of the universe and the different underlying trends and placing yourself in the right direction at the right time. So that if it all clicks, that's, that's a conscious exercise that like people don't usually, I do it consciously, specifically, I've been doing that consciously for a long, long time. Um, I guess part of my personality, I don't remember where, when I started to think about the emergent order of the universe and kind of like where I wanted to, but I always considered and I was saying to people like, well, you know, I'm the way that I, I, I just like to float, see things happen. And I have ADD, so it seems like I'm not working a lot or I'm not doing much, but I'm constantly thinking and I'm constantly analyzing and thinking about all of these things and placing myself into this right spot at the right time. And you cannot, so, so you cannot do that while you're inundated by noise. And certainly it's not, so, so when the, the returns that you get that I got were not based on time, they were based on mental energy and they were based on attention. So I realized, first of all, that my most scarce asset is not my time because I'm not a grunt. I'm not like, it's not a question of how many hours I can put in something. It's my mental energy. My, my mental capacity, my mental focus, um, which relies for me as a person, it relies on having, uh, on being in a good mood, for example. It's a very good example that I've realized for myself is I crush it when I'm in a good mood. When I'm in a bad mood, when, I'm, when I feel, um, for example, overwhelmed by the injustice of the universe and I feel gloomy, I'm in a terribly non-productive mood. But when I walk around the jungle and I you know, marvel at how beautiful the concept of the vine is just itself, like I'll just be like, how, you know, just thinking about the concept of, uh, you know, the symbiosis of trees, I mean, I'm in a very good mood and I'm just kind of walking around the path and that's where I have all of my best ideas. And they, and so the return on bullshit principle is simply that um, when you are faced with bullshit, dealing with bullshit, whether it is corporate bullshit, relationship bullshit, fake news bullshit, um, you are spending mental, mental energy and focus on bullshit and as a result of you doing so there is a potential reward so you look at okay so how much reward can i possibly get from getting exposed to this bullshit but understanding that being exposed to bullshit it means that you have to spend mental energy points on something and the second principle is the bullshit drag so okay so stop thinking about return on investment and return on time and start thinking on a return on attention or return on bullshit rather but then after I start to realize there's, there's a lot of, it's not only a question of how much return you can get on bullshit. It's also a function of how much total bullshit you have in your life. So the, the aggregate absolute amount of bullshit drag that is dragging you down. So when you're, um, uh, for, for example, uh, the return on, you know, accepting a corporate job can be immense. You can say, oh, wow, well, you know, I can get, get a million dollars from this. Bitcoin is at, you know, 10 grand or something. Oh, wow, I can get 100 Bitcoins from doing this deal. Uh, the return, yes, is going to be a lot of bullshit. 
but that bullshit might follow you for the rest of your life, right? The bullshit of not having spent your mental and the opportunity cost of not having spent your mental energy and attention while you were in your prime on something other productive, which is much different than, than, than your time and your money, because it's like, well, what would have happened if instead of being a fiat slave in a pod, I had been a, a free roaming individual, right? This, this, is, this is more of the opportunity cost that I'm thinking about here. Um, so yeah, so I don't know how I got on this tangent, but <laughs> I've been thinking of my life specifically about avoiding the mental drain of operating in the frame, in the social construct that they want me to operate in. For example, there's, there's, I, wrote, I wrote an article recently called Cry Harder about how to deal with people who are uh, worried about Bitcoin's climate change impact. And I had a passage in there that I should have made into the full article, and I was essentially saying, when you debate, or when you argue, or when you participate, or where you want to change the system from within, you accept the premises of their social construct. You, in order to, for you to be able to even communicate with some people, right? Otherwise, they'll just consider you an alien, right? You're not even going to be part of the discussion. It's a concept that's called the, the Overton window. A lot of people know about this. It's the window of political acceptable speech in the, in the common discourse. There's, there's a very narrow points of view that are considered legitimate and debatable. In order for you to be part of the discussion, you have to accept shaky premises and, and fallacious uh, understanding of the world. And you have to accept, for the sake of the argument, accept that you live in an alternative reality where the laws of, of are different, where two plus two equals five. So it's almost as if, I hate this. This is, this is the most maddening thing of this whole pandemic. In order for my opinion to be heard, I need to first and foremost accept that two plus two equals five. And once I've stated that with an oath, then I can start talking and we can reach a middle ground. I mean, this is just maddening, isn't it? Right, but, but by doing that, you kind of corrupt what your original message was gonna be, right? Because you have to contort it to fit that the parameters of those assumptions, right? But man, what you what you were just talking about, like this is something I hear from a lot of Bitcoiners. And to to simplify it, let's say that Bitcoin simplifies your life, right? It 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 allows you to access greater clarity. And I think part of that is because truth, you know, I like to think of truth in terms of being like it allows you to contend with what is, right? Not delusion, not illusion, but the greatest. You know, truth is the route to contending with what is, and that allows yes. you the most, the, the highest fidelity valuation that can be made is predicated on truth. And so when you're in that place, not to say nothing of the opportunity cost of focusing on anything other than Bitcoin and how compelling learning it about all the implications are, but just that sin single fact, I think allows the wheat to be separated from the trap, the, the chaff in terms of how you value things. Because it, it just it, the ground of valuation is set as pristinely as possible. And I think that makes it a lot easier for those things of greatest value to emerge from the background. And so that people then, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners then just know like that, that and that are the things that I'm going to focus on. Everything else is like I'll only deal with it if I absolutely must. Right. Because these things, you know, are worthy of my my limited resources more so than anything and pursuing other things you know at at the expense of those things is ultimately disadvantageous to where i want to go so it, it has this effect of just this this amazing simplicity which of course is also a freedom a liberation right a liberation from the noise of everything so that you can really 
both identify and then engage in the things of, of greatest value. And I think that is a manifestation of dealing with something that's a profound truth. I lost your, I lost your sound again. What happened? You on mute? Oh, this time I was, I was just on mute. So <laughs> it's not an, an, an existential problem. And I'm going to have to plug my phone real quick. Um, but yes, there's something that we don't see anymore that we used to see in French novels of the 17th and 18th century. And it's this concept of the, you know, young men that did something really epic in their 20s and accumulated a lot of cash as a result. For example, they went to the Orient, they got a bag of spices, they came back to Paris, it took them four years, they accumulated a shit ton of cash with which they launched, you know, uh, they did a few things and then they moved back to the countryside with a, with a, a bag of gold under their bed and they lived the rest of their lives uh, being patrons to arts and, and contemplating life in their fancy library um, based on, on their accumulated capital. Like we used to see this in French novels all the time. It was, it's almost a cliche character. Um, the, uh, the rich wazif, the rich wazif, the, the rich person that, that has a lot of free time. Um, and this, this liberating aspect of Bitcoin, which is okay. So now that I don't have to constantly work in order to be able to enjoy, because, you know, Saving has a really good uh, way to say this. It's ultimate. I think he says ultimately every trade that you make is a trade with your future self. Um, so every decision that you make is is essentially long term versus short term. And you know what Bitcoin really Bitcoin nails this in your head so hard you have nightmares over it, right? I mean Bitcoin forces you to always think of, okay, what is my opportunity cost? What is my opportunity cost? What am I not getting by stacking more sats? I mean, talk about a, a, a mental rewiring of, of everything. I mean, the, I, I, well, I, every, decision, every decision that I'm thinking about is, okay, how much do I want to enjoy, you know, building a house, doing this, doing that, all my strategies. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's truly absolutely shifted the way that I, that I consider. I, and, you know, I don't even know what I used to, think how I used yeah. to make decisions. Well, it's um, like, it's you know, like when, when, yeah. when you're making this, the opportunity cause is like, is, is my attention deserving of this thing or towards obtaining or uh, contributing to the emblem of the salvation of humanity, right? Like that's kind of the opportunity cost. Like how, how could you better be, you better value to a, a high degree, the other thing, right? And that's why I think the things of transcendent value remain in that in that calculation, things like love, things like family, things like health, these remain because they're transcendent. They're not measured by your own limitations, but everything else that is has to melt away in the face of this thing that we've been talking about, which is Bitcoin and what it's going to foster and its implications and that kind of stuff. So I think that's part of the, the dynamic yeah. that's at play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just a couple more, Francis, then I'll let you go. But I, one thing I wanted to ask you a few minutes ago was you talk about this uh, reacquaintance with your masculine side, right? With the alpha male, the primal, whatever. And this is also not uncommon uh, in this space. And I'm just wondering, have you thought about that? And what have you come up with in terms of uh, the process that you think is at play in, in fostering that change in basically who you are, or how you express yourself as a, as a, as a male homo, sa homo sapien? That's a very quick question because I, 
I haven't put a lot of energy thinking about this aspect of my life. It just really just gradually emerged. Um, I guess it's, it's hard, it's hard to is answer. It just, it's like, hard to is answer. it just situational? Like I need to, I need to adapt for more, uh, difficult circumstances on the horizon. I need to be stronger, faster, more equipped because things are going to get here. I don't think that's just it. Like, I think there's more at play there, but it's such a common phenomenon now. I was just wondering if you'd given it any thought. I mean, um, I haven't given it that much thought. I wish I had some intelligent comments to pull out <laughs> right here about uh, what is this that is, that is driving a bunch of us. And I mean, just a, a shout out to like a guy like Nick Carter, for example. Uh, he looks like he's absolutely ripped right now. I can't wait to see him in Miami. Uh, when I remembered uh, meeting him for the first time, we were both about the same size, a bit more scrawny. Uh, so I see a lot of it. Okay, so first things first, there has been the peer pressure of the Bitcoin community. Um, definitely a wake up call when you have a lot of these guys out there that are that are kind of, you, you know, you're, you're, you're placing yourself. Maybe that's what it is, actually. Um, we used to be a lot of the Bitcoiners. We used to be in our own environments, um, surrounded. We hovering, let's say, in the in the alpha kind of category in our environments, surrounded by people who we were comparing ourselves to, and being quite satisfied about where we were. And now we are suddenly emerging all over the world, getting into discussion, networking, contact with other men that are in their respective fields all over the world, also kind of like top dogs. You know, they were generally risk-taking people. Um, so you're, you're, you're comparing you're comparing yourself to, to, to people of extremely high quality. Um, obviously, you know, the concept of independence and self-reliance of Bitcoin, I think, obviously translates into uh, uh, eventually per permeates into your personal life philosophies. Um, I think, uh, you know, low time preference for me, for example, I, I've, I really, really was not a low time preference individual. I was a very high time preference individual. I was not really thinking beyond 35, 40. You know, another thing is, you know, Bitcoin definitely, I think, strongly encourage the desire to have children, mm. uh, the desire to leave a legacy, to leave something behind. Um, also, that was a huge factor. Uh, when I, you know, when I think about, okay, so what's going to happen after I die? Uh, well, uh, I'm pretty excited that at least, you know, my children are going to have a fuck ton of Bitcoin and hopefully my grandchildren are also going to have a fuck ton of Bitcoin. Um, so they will be able to do amazing things. And as time goes on, these things will become more and more amazing. That definitely has has uh, filled a. I don't have the existential angst, for example, of of dying and what you know what's going to happen after. I mean, I, I'm very content with the with the concept of leaving a legacy for people that I love around me. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, how do we explain, for example, this obsession with nutrition, fitness, alpha behavior with Bitcoiners? I mean, honest, I don't want to shoo away that that topic because I personally find it fascinating, but maybe I'm too close to it to, cause I've just, I don't know. I, I'm living this moment you're right just, now. You're just embodying where it, right? I'm, I'm rediscovering myself. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, look, man, I, I think it's multifaceted, like all this kind of stuff. But if, if you were to look for a kernel of truth on which a lot of this was predicated, 
It's, I, I think it's just that like Bitcoin is about coming back to nature It's about coming back. To, and I don't mean nature is in the natural world. I mean, I mean, coming back to reality, you know, we've had this, uh, you know, we had this force of fiat money in the state that it fosters that softened all the edges and that's imposed a narrative that's imposed behavioral uh, imperatives on people. And so what happens when all that melts away? What happens when you, you, you start back from, you know, the basics, when you, you know, I'm, when you reconstruct the world around, you know, more grounded in mm -hmm. truth, I think you necessarily come back yeah. to things like what, what most feeds my, the strength of my body, what most feeds the clarity yeah. of my mind, what, what, on, on yes. what yes. are the best relationships predicated? You know, and of course, as mm -hmm. Bitcoiners, like our, our intellects are on fire too, right? We're looking at history. We're looking at science. We're looking at all these different domains to try to, I mean, we are hatching something new, but there, there is also an element of this that's an archaic revival. We're looking back in the past too and to say, what were things like before they were corrupted by these false incentives and these, these institutions and these societies that have neutered us, that, so that have softened us mm -hmm. in so many ways. And so- Part of rejecting that is doing the opposite to some degree, which is always the case, the rebellious in a rebellious sense. But I think it's more yeah. that we're in every domain now, we're looking for truth. What is the truth of the matter when it comes to yeah. religion, when it comes to strength, when it comes to family, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to sex, when it comes to mental clarity, when it comes to economics, when it comes to human exchange, when it comes to spirituality, we want to know the fucking yeah. truth about all that stuff. Yeah. And if you pursue that truth, you begin to embody it, like you're saying. So like the, the proof is in the pudding, right? The fact that you are yeah. starting to morph into someone who espouses the things that you're espousing and who represents physically, mentally, and spiritually the things that you've been talking about is what happens when you go on that journey. Everyone's going to interpret it differently. Everyone's on different timelines. But you know, this is why I'm so interested in this phenomenon because it is so consistent, even though there are those differences in... in uh, you know, in preferences and inclinations and, and timelines, like a lot of these themes are being represented and embodied in different, in, in a lot of different people. And so I think it's, it's a, yeah. it's, an, it's a revival of truth. And, and, and that truth is about figuring out what it is to be a human being on this earth, in this reality, absent, maybe the philosophies or the systems that were detaching us from the, those things. And so when, when we come back to that, when we come back to reality, when we come back to contending with what is and the consequences of doing so, I think it's not, uh, it, it, it's not unexpected that people would develop a stronger sense of who they are and a, a stronger connection with the forces of nature that created them and the differences between the sexes, for example, and the, the things to lean into uh, if you're of one sex or the other and how best to come together, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And that's why, that's why this is so, so, so compelling because it's not just like an update to an economic system. It obviously is that, right. but there is so much more to this story. And, you know, it's, absolutely. It's, and I think, I think you, you, you've nailed it. It's, it's this, it's seeking the truth, but in the way that I would frame it as also is avoiding the illusion of the, 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 the constructs of the mind, it, uh, avoiding to base your, your, your life actions, actions on a construct of the mind. And for me, for example, I do remember a specific moment where it was the first time I started surfing about three years ago. And I had been <clears throat> off of my phone for about a week and I was living in a hostel. I was, uh, um, 
you know, sharing meals with strangers. I was in a very social set. I was a very physically active set. And I kind of rode one of my first good waves. And when I was finished, I felt this absolute deluge of serotonin. What I, I can only describe as being serotonin. I don't know what it was. Some people might say it's almost a religious experience in a way where you feel the weight of the shoulders lifting off of the world. Uh, you feel the weight of the world lifting off of your shoulders. And it's almost as if I, I really, I remember that one time I got a tattoo, like just a few hours later, my first tattoo I got uh, <laughs> two hours later because I was so overwhelmed by this experience. And it was as if I realized that I have a body, I am a person, I am not just an intellectual projection. Um, you know, I am not just a historical character. I am not a future Wikipedia entry. Um, I am a living, breathing human on this earth. Uh, and I, you know, feeling a connection, feeling a sense of presence and a connection of, uh, of, of the, I, when I describe my moment to a lot of people, a lot of people, they said, oh, have you read the power of one on the power of being grounded, the power of being, the power of presence. And I don't know if this is linked to Bitcoin. I suspect on a subconscious level, it's all of these processes are interfering kind of feeding each other because that is also when I became also much more toxic, right? So my the toxic side of my personality or the, or the side of my personality, which was not seeking consensus and compromise, but was seeking rather supremacy. I'll be honest. I mean, when I, when I promote my, my narrative and my message, my goal is not to seek a consensus on my ideas. My goal is to seek the supremacy and the dominance of my ideas. Um, and that side of me appeared at the same time, for example, that I started to do weightlifting, heavy weightlifting. So I got into like CrossFit around that time. Um, give, you know, and I started to do Olympic weightlifting and that whole side of me just kind of erupted. And I guess it also, I, I don't question myself. I feel I sleep really well, you know, uh, over time as all of these ideologies started to, to, to come together in my head. And I also started to change my group of friends and everything started. And, and I just started to, to get this feeling of, yes, I'm definitely on the right. And specifically, I would say during the lockdowns, uh, when, I, it's almost as if I was doing it out of spite. I was doing it to spite everyone else. I was, I, I, I felt disgusted by a culture of weakness and by a call. And I, I really was kind of like, okay, I'm going to fucking go to the gym illegally out of spite. I'm going right. to, I'm not, and I'm, and I'm going to go to the market and I'm going to cook amazing food and I'm not going to order in food. And I'm going to, I'm going to go walk and watch the sunset instead of watching TV out of spite. And I'm going to take mushrooms and I'm going to walk around town and I'm, I'm not going to let myself. Um, I, I really wanted to like send that message. And I was, I was also uh, doing this for myself to keep myself sane, right? It, you know, never underestimate how almost insane I think I was about to go during the lockdowns being, being cut off entirely from all social ties. Um, so yeah, this, this, this sense of presence that you get is also like, I don't, I refuse to live in a construct of the mind. I want to experience life as it is. Like, I don't, I don't want to go through life living in a, in, in a fantasy, even though it's possible, you know, it's possible. And when you go into Bitcoin, for example, the, you, I think maybe Bitcoin is what opens up this gap intellectually. Um, because when you go into Bitcoin, you are physically opting out of, what you now perceive to be everyone's fantasy, mm -hmm. right? And when you, you physically have your Bitcoin and you fully understand of 
the, 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 the philosophical implications of this monetary system, which people usually get after like two years, two and a half years of into Bitcoin. They've, they've seen enough podcasts and they've read enough great articles by the very talented content creators we have in the Bitcoin community um, to, to understand you know, how much of a collective fiction fiat is and to, re, to, to you are faced with the unescapable fact that you have been living in a fantasy your whole life and you didn't question it until you got into Bitcoin. So what else were you not questioning about your identity? You know, it's like, now that I know that I'm right on this one thing, um, let's see what else I've been lying to myself about. Yeah. Right. Uh, and the, the, the one thing that you cannot escape as a consequence is the opportunity cost of, you know, people can in fact escape the consequences of reality for a very long time. There's a saying that says you can't escape reality, but you can't escape the consequences of escaping reality. But as we said earlier in the discussion, you know, at this point, it's like, well, is it going to be 15 years? Because now people seem to be doing just fine escaping the consequences of reality. I mean, sure, we got some, a little bit of inflation, but is it really all that bad? Objectively, no. I mean, people are not dying on the streets of hunger and stuff like that. Um, so perhaps, but the opportunity cost of Bitcoin, if the Bitcoin standard emerges, is something that people will not be able to escape, right? So uh, that is like the one thing that keeps you in check because you can fool yourself on many things, but not on your Bitcoin balance <laughs> and not on your future ability to acquire Bitcoin. Because you can say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll work harder in the future. Um, but for example, I was doing this calculation of how many hours of time under my fiat salary, or even when I was working for a Bitcoin company, like in 2013, how many hours it took me to acquire a Bitcoin. And it was something like, I don't know, like 10 hours or something like that. And at the same salary right now, I mean, it was something like 10,000 hours or some yeah. insane amount of hours. So even if you, you, you really try, you cannot, absolutely cannot escape that fact uh, uh, when the Bitcoin standard emerges. So, uh, that is the first process of deconstructing uh, this social construct or this mental construct, which is, okay, regardless of my mental construct, this is what my Bitcoin node is telling me. There's no other way around it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, man, talking about, you know, obviously this space, we talk about uh, toxicity a lot and some people decry it. And I am, you know, very much against, like what you, I'm against uh, those criticisms but what you just said is like i think that's the appropriate attitude right and peterson is off to um quote the bible verse where it says the meek shall inherit the earth right and that's been broadly misinterpreted where he goes on to explain that you know what meek actually means is those who have swords and know how to use them but keep them she uh, sheathed will inherit the earth and like if we we are all trying to contend with reality and then refine it to find greater truth and build you know, a greater life and greater uh, world, then we should have that the enough formula uh, formidability to compete with one another with the in the highest stakes. So for just for example, like you say, like, I want my I have I construct my ideas and my philosophies. And then I want to establish I I, I, I communicate them as if to establish their dominance, right? And you should because I should be doing the same thing. And so I should come at you with, with just as formidable and just because what we're trying to do is we're trying to restructure the dominance hierarchy or the value hierarchy of the ideas so that we put the best ideas at top 
at top and subordinate everything, uh, all the worst ideas to it in sequential order. So we can't do that if I don't come seeking to impose my ideas on you and you don't come to uh, seeking to impose uh, your ideas on me, but with the mutual respect that with the non-egoic attachment that I'm doing it to satisfy my ego, but I'm doing it in service of the truth. If you can do the latter, yes. then our, our formidability, our combativeness is actually accretive. It's constructive. If we're just doing it because I want to win and I want you to lose, well, that's destructive. But I think that's part of this masculine sort of thing that's emerging. It's like there's a recognition that that attitude is actually beneficial in the service of truth. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there's also, in terms of the, uh, the toxic aspect of Bitcoin, which is not the toxic masculinity aspect, but just the, the, the toxic aspect of the Bitcoin narrative, I think it's this, I, 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 your viewers may be familiar with the concept of remnants. Uh, have you read, for example, the, the essay Isaiah's Job by Albert J. Nock? So, so the concept of the remnant uh, is rooted in Austrian economics through this um, essay by an Aust uh, someone who was influential in the Austrian later in the Austrian economics uh, field, uh, Albert J. Nock. Um, but essentially, if you are a preacher of an ideology or of a new way of life, and you observe that people around you are on a destructive path, which is the, uh, the case of the prophet Isaiah, which was visited by God and God told him, you must tell everyone how wretched they are and their lifestyle is, 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 is horrible and you know, you know, doom is coming if they don't change their ways. Um, but the masses, the vast majority of people um, are completely lacking of any intellectual, moral, fortitude, sense of ethics, sense of rectitude, to do anything about the situation and it's hopeless and they will turn on you and they will hate it that you tell them to take responsibility for their actions. Um, but there is a small minority of people within this sea of people that the, the author describes in the Bible supposedly describes as the remnant. And these people are the people that have what it takes to rebuild the system once it collapses. And if you dilute your message, to cater to the masses, you will lose those people. Those people will sift through the, the, the noise and eventually your broadcasting signal will find them. But if you dilute your message to go to the masses, you will won win over the masses. But what good is that going to do to you to have the masses on your side? Because they're not useful, they're useless. They're not, they're, they are the sources of obstacles that are, that are keeping progress from moving forward. Um, uh, so you have to keep your message completely pure so that the people out there don't, that have a, a bullshit detector, don't detect the bullshit. So we're trying to get, to convince the people that are predisposed to an allergy to bullshit that are definitely willing to deconstruct what they see as being bullshit all around them and to offer them a vision of truth, right? So what we're, what we're offering people is in a sea of bullshit, we're offering, this is the truth. This is, this is what is, is reality. And then if you dilute your message, for sure you're gonna lose those people. And you say, oh, another bullshitter, another bullshitter. So that is coming to time to another part of our discussion. Like 
I think that's what toxic really means is no, I am not going to meet in the middle. There's Bitcoin or there's shitcoin. There's this or there's that. Like we are categorical about these questions. There's no ambiguity in our minds. We're not confused. We're not, you know, musing about what we think reality is and taking this lightly. We are just stating like there's this and there's that. Um, if you don't like reality, you know, fuck off. That's the, what I, I call the Bitcoin toxic attitude. Um, this uh, refusal to compromise. Let's just call it the absolute refusal to compromise on anything, um, you know, best embedded by my favorite thing about Bitcoin, I would say, is the fact that a simple block size increase of 2x was so, such, such an unacceptable compromise that it led to a two-year almost civil war, the creation of multiple shitcoin. The, 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 it is a huge fucking deal because we were not willing to compromise on, on something that in, in retrospect might seem quite trivial because um, people compromise on you know, the, the, the monetary inflation rate and monetary policy all the time, which has far greater consequences. So this is what is Bitcoin's strength. Immutability is toxic as fuck. Immutability is toxic. It's unforgiving, right? So it's, it's offensive. Censorship resistance is extremely offensive. Uh, and anonymity is, ex ex is extremely triggering because, you know, uh, 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 th these things are, are very toxic in, in their very nature. Uh, immutability means immovable, right? No compromise. There's no compromise on Bitcoin's history. There's no compromise on whether or not a block is valid every time 100% of all nodes agree on everything. So um, whether or not that reflects itself in, okay, so now that we're so toxic in the, so basically this whole, this whole, what I'm saying is, I don't know if I became toxic masculine or toxic mas maximalist first, right? So did I become a, a masculinist or did I embrace my masculinity at the same time as I embrace my maximalism without uh, apology and uh, a similar principle probably motivated both and permeates both and mm -hmm. more you know it's yes. that's the nature of this thing but I, I you know that's the right I, statistical I, approach actually good job <laughs> <laughs> uh well francis i'm sure we could uh, do this for a long time but actually this this was what i wanted to ask you i said i had two more questions what is yes go ahead what is like a, a, an average day for you like right now with like what do you do? Um, so I wake up at usually around uh, 5.15, 5.30. Uh, I uh, uh, go, I, I drink. My th the first thing I do, let's be precise. The first thing I do is I drink uh, what my girlfriend calls our green drink, which is uh, a, a mix of a bunch of fruits and vegetables and spirulina and all sorts of oils and stuff like that. So I have completely changed from the carnivore mindset. I now fully <laughs> embrace the fruits and vegetables and the bounty of the earth uh, in all its forms. Uh, I have coffee. Usually on most days, I either go swimming at like, you know, 5.45, 6 or something like that, or surfing if I'm not injured. As you can see, I'm injured right now. So uh, I have a big scab on my head, so I'm not surfing these days. So instead, I'll just, you know, go surfing or something like that. Um, Immediately after surfing, I'll have breakfast, and then um, uh, you know I don't as as a digital nomad. So that's like kind of like my morning routine is like the most important part of my day. Um, I'll 
But as a digital nomad, my work hours are very low, right? So, I mean, at some point, you know, the 10 hour work week or whatever, four hour work week is like definitely real in a sense that I have structured my, my life so that most of everything is automated and I don't have a lot of input to do in my, my work. I've delegated quite well. So my remote work is essentially mostly geared towards making a few phone calls. Um, and, you know, most of my life centers around fitness right now, uh, surfing, doing exercise, uh, eating, shopping. Um, I go to bed really early. Uh, I don't ever watch television. For example, um, my best vice is absolutely Twitter in terms of uh, mental attention and energy. Right now I'm banned from Twitter, so uh, that's quite convenient. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's it. Uh, you know, I have a motorcycle. Nice. <laughs> I, 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 go, I, I go around town. I mean, I, I definitely take my time. I'm, I'm not in a rush. Actually, not on a schedule. I don't look at my emails. It's very hard to reach me. I've made myself very, very difficult to reach. Um, there's very few reasons to reach me that can't, you know, go to someone else instead of me. Uh, I've definitely, I don't have a personal assistant, for example. I definitely took a lot of Nassim Taleb's, for example, was one of my inspirations as a lifestyle originally before Nassim Taleb changed or bloomed depend, depending on you see the, the pers- depending on your pr- perspective but this idea of the flaneur this idea that I'm I'm able to just be very present it's very important for me in, in my style like just to be very very present and definitely not try to sip through so much noise you know I think to come full circle uh, in terms of my daily life return on bullshit is the absolute main driver. And that's been my same, my, my same attitude is, you know what? I, I've decided that I've seen enough noise to know what is the signal. I do not need to find the signal. There's so much, so many red pills you can swallow at some point. Right. So mm. I basically decided that every time I was debating an idea or thinking about an idea uh, or a new concept, I've either uh, won the argument already or I've changed my mind. And I've, so I've been, I'm right on everything, essentially, is my, is my kind of my idea. Um, <laughs> and that has led me to turn down so many opportunities, so many uh, uh, distractions, right? So if I only work like anywhere between, you know, to be realistic, something between like eight and 12 hours a week, uh, it is absolutely impossible for me to entertain uh, any form of bullshit whatsoever. So my my noise to, to signal ratio at work and my, my bullshit return on bullshit at work is is extremely narrow, and it's essentially focused around just doing what you what you do best, even better, continuously. Um, so that frees up a lot of your time, right? It's not it's not like easy for people to be like, okay, let's just you know let's just do that. Let's just start working very few hours a week and focusing your time on what really matters and uh, realizing what added value you bring to your work so you can free up your time and it's essentially just for enjoyment of your life. Um, so th- there's nothing wrong with, and I, in my sense, in trying t- to aim to a life of quote, quote, vacation where you're not working hard all the time and, you're, uh, and, you're, and you are actually spending a, a lot of free time creatively to do things that you like I mean, I'm doing a lot of building, physical building projects. 
I'm doing a lot of, I'm doing some nonprofit stuff. Uh, I'm working on open source projects, which I don't count as work time. Um, these things that are in my estimation good because you have to be very, very conscious of where you bring value. So how, what is the value that you're, you're bringing? And in my case, for example, I've determined that the value that I bring is to be able to judge ideas on whether or not they're good. That's it, right? So like, I, I'll, I'll just think of it. I'm able to say whether or not something is a good idea. And after all, all, all that I've been through in my Bitcoin space, I think this has been the number one re reason to my success is being able to, to have so much information categorized in my head, to have, have a bright knowledge and insider knowledge and outsider knowledge that I'm able to just make a judgment call. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of like my philosophy on the lifestyle. It, it, and honestly, this is what, I'm most happy about in 2021 to just kind of end the discussion, like this transformative year, it has been to prove that this works. I mean, I am physically in the fucking jungle right now and I'm running a Bitcoin exchange successfully in Canada, um, having built infrastructure during the bear period uh, that, automate, that automates systems that uses technology to replace bureaucratic systems and using the latest edge of not just Bitcoin, but just computer technology in general to automate these things. So this is, I think, what the, the sovereign individual truly means is like you build this capacity infrastructure for yourself, which can any source of cash flow and any source of resources for yourself so that you are able to get them come in and then some people will choose to reinvest your, their free time in working really hard and, and crushing it, for example, by all sorts of business deals. And others, you know, like me, will have another approach, which is, well, I'm just going to focus on removing all bullshit from my life so I can see clearly so that I don't need to sift through a thousand pounds of bullshit to get a nugget of gold. I have like these special, like, special goggles that allow me to see through the bullshit, all of it, and go for these opportunities right away. Two different ways of, of, of doing your life. But I have to say that as a Bitcoiner, you're much more suited towards my kind of lifestyle. And John, I mean, I don't know about you, uh, but do you have a similar kind of lifestyle? So like, how do you see yourself in this kind of learning? Like, how satisfied are you with your your work, your, your geopolitical situation, because it's been a lot about me, but I'm, maybe to close it off, I'm kind of curious to see like, you know, w what's up with you these days? And how <laughs> have you set yourself up during the last year? Well, we, we may have to, are you going to be at Miami? I am. Are you going to be at 2021? Well, we might have to discuss that yes. one over a few beers, but mine, mine has been a bit different. I was doing kind of what you're good. doing now before 2021 and 2021 threw a, a bit of a spanner in the works. And so I've been in Newfoundland for this longest period I've been here in over a decade. And uh, so that hasn't been ideal. And, and now I'm trying to figure out what the next move is. Cause I was in Thailand before and, mm -hmm. every, you know, kind of living the lifestyle you just described in Thailand and it, it, it was fantastic. Uh, but things are changing there in a way that's, that's not so great. So I'm kind of looking for no good gr greener pastures now. So I don't know if that's Costa Rica, Panama, yeah. Bahamas, Barbados, you know, I'm, I'm sorting all that, uh, all that stuff out right now. The Holy Trinity, the Holy Trinity is uh, Mexico, Florida, Costa Rica. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking. So I'm hoping 
uh, I have a lot of conversations at, in, at 2021 and kind of hash some of that stuff out. And I don't expect to be returning to Canada after the conference, actually. So uh, I will have to figure that out because um, I don't want, you know, <laughs> I don't have to tell you why I don't want to return. But uh, right now you got to pay $3,000 to put yourself up in a government facility just to enter your own, your own country. And something about that just doesn't sit well with me. So. Yeah, exactly. Un- unacceptable. Yeah. Um, Francis, I really appreciate this. This has been fun, man. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, it was, I'm so glad that you were the type of person that did what you did over the past year and set an example for people that are looking to do the same and share your experience. And, uh, I can't wait to uh, hang out and have a few beers in Miami. Sounds good, man. Thanks a lot for having me on. All right, brother. Take care.